If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. We are in chapter 12 again this morning, as we are in the second main division of the Gospel of John, often called the Book of Glory. We've now been here for a few weeks. We've seen Jesus be anointed by Mary. We've seen him enter into uh, Jerusalem triumphantly. And now this morning we're going to look at John 12, verses 20 through 26. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. John 12, beginning at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you would open up your word to us. It is your word, O Lord. It is life. And so we pray this morning that your people would be built up, that the lost would be called to Christ, and that you would be glorified. This we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. What does it mean? to seek Jesus. We've seen that that is easy to misunderstand. It's easy to misunderstand Jesus and his mission. Just last week we saw Jesus enter Jerusalem to the triumphant cries of the crowd. But for the most part, that crowd did not understand who Jesus was or what he had come to do. Now this morning we have a scene from a day or two later in which some Greeks come seeking Jesus. And what Jesus does is he overturns worldly expectations and he tells us that for our lives to be right, we must turn them upside down. Jesus takes this opportunity to show us that his glory is found in two places. First, in the glory of the cross. And then second, in the glory of following Jesus. 
So let's begin then by looking at John's account of this scene. Begins in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. We're introduced to some seekers. John describes them as some Greeks. Now they are likely Greek Gentiles from the region near Galilee, from the Decapolis. But they are not pagans. They're not unfamiliar with the God of Israel. And we know this because John tells us that they went up to worship. They're like the centurion we meet who went to Jesus. Or like the devout Greeks that Paul met in Thessalonica in Acts 17. That were converted. They had already known God in a general sense. They wanted to worship him. But here their desire is to see Jesus. They've heard about Jesus. Perhaps it's from the triumphal entry just a day or two before. They want to come and to speak with Jesus. And so as the Gentiles would come to this Passover feast, they would come into the temple area. And the temple area was divided into several sections. The largest section, the most outer section, was the court of the Gentiles. And people like these Greeks could come to that portion of the temple. But they couldn't go into the inner sections of the temple. They couldn't go where the sacrifices were made. They couldn't go where the labor was. They certainly couldn't get into the Holy of Holies. And so they came here and they wanted to see Jesus. And the meaning of what they're saying here is, we want to talk to Jesus. We want to hear about Jesus. You know, this verse is one of the most famous out-of-context verses in all of Presbyterianism. Because almost every Presbyterian pulpit has a little plaque that says, Sir, we would see Jesus. And what's implied by that is that the preacher should present Jesus to the congregation. And even though we don't have a plaque, I trust you understand that it has been my task for 18 years now, coming on, to show you Jesus. But that's not exactly what they're saying. They don't just want to see Jesus from afar. They don't just want Jesus presented to them. They want to interview Jesus. They want to talk to Jesus. They want to understand who Jesus is. And so they don't know what to do. And I want you to see here that John does something he often does that is very interesting. He makes a juxtaposition. What do I mean by that? He puts two things close together that draw our attention. So, at the risk of making you go back to last week, look with me at verse 19. In verse 19, you will recall, the Pharisees said to one another, do you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone, the whole world has gone after him. And you will recall, we said the irony of this was that Jesus had come to go after the world. But now when we go to verse 20, there's only a slight pause from John. He didn't wait a week. So you have to see it here. The whole world has gone after them. And now among those who went up to worship were some Greeks. It's as if John is saying, exactly true. Look, here's the world. World, meet Jesus. Come and be here. And so they are here to see Jesus. And they come upon Philip and Andrew. You can imagine these Greeks, they've heard about Jesus, they want to meet with him, and they say to themselves, what will we do? How can we get to Jesus? And perhaps 
One of them, I imagine in my mind, I says, oh, wait, look, look, look there's, there's what's his name. He goes with Jesus. He's one of our neighbors. Oh, uh, uh, Philip, Philip, let's go find him. I know he goes with Jesus. He can get us to Jesus. And so they come up to Jesus. Now, John doesn't tell us why they come up to Philip. Perhaps it's because he was from an area adjacent to where they were from. John tells us that he was from Bethsaida, which is close to the Decapolis, which is close to that Gentile area. You know, maybe it's because he had a Greek name. His name is Philip, which means lover of horses. Now, before you stop me and say that doesn't sound like a very interesting name, I want you to understand that in those days, horses were a sign of wealth and prestige. So today, your name might not be lover of horses. It might be lover of Teslas or of Lamborghinis. You have to get the idea of that. So Philip's family at least had some kind of interaction or relationship with Gentiles and with Greeks. And so they go up to Philip, and I could just imagine in my mind's eye, Philip saying to himself, now what do I do here with these people? He says, you know, Jesus is a busy man. I mean, he's here, he's riding in on a donkey, he's flipping over money changers tables, he's teaching, you know, we know people are after us. There's all kinds of stuff going on here. And he might even think to himself, well, you know, there was that Gentile woman and Jesus told her that he'd come to the Jews first and not to them. So maybe he doesn't want to talk with these Gentiles. I don't know. What do I do? And he does what I imagine many of the disciples did on many occasions. They said, he said, I'm going to go talk to Andrew. Andrew is my man. He'll tell me what to do. And he goes and talks to Andrew. Now, Andrew's from the same place that Philip is from. And Philip's not sure what to do, so he goes to Andrew. Now, why would he go to Andrew? It's, it's very interesting. Andrew, this is the third time we've met him in this gospel. And there's one thing that Andrew always does. He brings people to Jesus. That's his gift. You may remember in John chapter 1, he brought his brother Peter to Jesus. You may remember in John chapter 6 when everyone was hungry and there was the little boy with the five loaves and the two fishes, the little lunchable. What did Andrew do? He took him to Jesus. And now here, it shouldn't surprise us, Andrew is going to say to Philip, well, of course, we're going to take them to Jesus. Now, this should be a reminder to us. Do you see what Andrew's spiritual gift is? It's not preaching. It's not hospitality. It's not administration. It's bringing people to Jesus. It's a pretty simple but very important gift. He makes it look easy. Now, let me ask you, do you look for similar opportunities to bring people to Jesus? It can be just as simple as what Andrew does. See, we think if we're going to bring people to Jesus, we need to memorize the whole book of Romans. Or at least the whole Romans road. And we need to have at least half the shorter catechism memorized. And we need to be able to answer every question that any skeptic on any part of the planet could possibly ask. But what Andrew tells us, and it should be an encouragement to you, that it could be such a simple thing as, would you come to church with me? You know, there's a Gallup poll in which they asked unchurched people if they would go to church. And an astounding number 
more than 80% of them said they would go to church on one condition. If they received a personal invitation from a friend who would go with them to church. Now, I have great confidence in our congregation. I believe you all have the ability to stand and to talk to someone and to walk into the church and then to sit. That's what it would take to go to a coworker or a neighbor and to say, would you come to church with me? I'll meet you out front so you won't feel lost. You won't know where the bathroom is. You will, you'll know where to sit. You, it's hard to underestimate how much that reduces a barrier of someone coming to church. And then they can hear God's people praise Him. They can hear God's Word read. They can hear God's Word expounded from the sermon. We need to be more like Andrew. It's a simple way to bring people to Jesus. Well, Jesus then responds. He says, the hour has come. Now, I want you to notice what John highlights and what he doesn't highlight. In verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come. Now, what we don't know is who the them is. Who is Jesus speaking to? Is it Andrew and Philip? Is it all the disciples? Is it the Greeks? Is it the bigger crowd? John really doesn't make an effort to let us know because that's not what's important. It's not important to whom Jesus is speaking. What's important is what he says. John wants us to focus on the content of his response. The hour has come. And this is a remarkable answer. It's one we're not used to and one we're not expecting. For example, at the wedding in Cana, in chapter 2, Jesus told his mother, my hour has not come. And then, when Jesus' younger brothers came to him in John 7 and said, look, Rabbi, you need to up your profile. You need to go in to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. Jesus responded, the hour has not come. And when the authorities tried to arrest him after that feast, we're told they could not. Why? Because his hour had not come. But now, the crisis is coming. We can see it. After all, Jesus didn't stop the crowd from declaring him king. And all of his ministry has been building up to this point. The time is short. And so Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. He says, the time, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, you may remember that Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man. You may also remember that this does not emphasize his humanity. That's the first way we might think about this. Son of Man, Jesus is man, that's what he's saying. But what Jesus is actually doing is drawing on a picture from Daniel chapter 7 in which the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man is given all authority and power and dominion. He's given a kingdom that's a mighty and eternal kingdom. This title highlights the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also can't forget that Jesus talks about this in the context of his having descended. So in John 3 verse 13 he says, The one who will ascend has first descended. And so he's reminding us that he has come to earth to do a mission. 
That's what His glory is all about. His glory is about this mission that should be before our eyes. That gives us context for the glory of the Son of Man. We know that the Jews were looking for a display of power, for a victory, for might. But Jesus is referring to the cross. Jesus is telling us that His glory would be on display in His death on the cross. You see, the world saw the cross as the greatest humiliation. It was a shame. But Jesus understood it was His highest glory. We are used to thinking about the cross in the context of Jesus' victory over sin. But to the world, it was a shameful defeat. It was evidence of Jesus' failure. And so the question is, will you think about the cross today from the world's perspective or from Jesus' perspective? Well, what is so glorious about the cross? We shouldn't just assume it. Jesus gives us a reason to glory in the cross, that it was his greatest work, the work of saving sinners. The greatest problem ever, the highest conundrum ever to be fashioned, was how a just and holy God could be the justifier of the ungodly. And in weakness, and sacrifice. Jesus conquered sin and death. This is foolish to the world. The world wants power and fame. But we see that the glory of our Savior is found in His death. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Christ's death is His glory. And it ought also to be ours. To spiritual eyes, the Christ of God was never more glorious than when he was nailed to the cross of Calvary. Now, you might be tempted here this morning to look for power and might. Do you long for the days when Christians were in power in our nation? Are you afraid of what might happen to the church because of opposition to the church in the world today? Jesus is calling you to trust only in Him. He's calling you to the cross. And so Jesus gives them and us an illustration. And this would have been familiar to them, and it can be familiar to us. He says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So we automatically know that we need to pay attention to this. We've seen this before when Jesus says, truly, truly. Amen, amen. Verily, verily. Listen up here is what we're being told. Now, think about this, what Jesus is saying for just a minute here. I'm not a farmer. I've never worked on a farm. But have you ever met a farmer that when you went into the farmhouse, he said, I've got to show you my pride and joy. Here is my jar full of seed corn. Look, it's up on the mantelpiece. And wait, watch this. Look at this. 
there's the light spotlight on a seed corn. Does it get any better than that? I mean, who could have seed corn? I've been very careful with this. You know, we keep it at the right temperature. We keep it at the right humidity. We don't want anything to happen to the seed corn. Now, the more I talk about that, the crazier it sounds, right? Because no one does that. Because if I could put it this way, seed corn has no value up on a shelf. What you do with seed corn is if you stop and think about it for a moment, it's a little bit crazy. You take it and you throw it out into the earth and you put dirt over it and life springs from it spontaneously. Now, I know that happens all the time all over the world, but when you talk about it that way, it sounds a little bit crazy, doesn't it? Just like what Jesus is saying. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. The whole point of the seed is that it must die. But putting it in the ground and burying it, that's where we see its power. And isn't that power remarkable? Think about how life comes from death. How plenty and abundance come from what might seem foolish. And that's what Jesus wants us to see, that his death was necessary. Unless he were to die, there would be no life. That's absolutely and fundamentally true. There would be not one redeemed person but for the death of Christ. If there is no cross, there is no Christianity. There is no salvation. It doesn't matter how many religious symbols you have in your home or stuck on your car. It doesn't matter how diligently you seek to follow Jesus, to do the things that he tells you to do. It doesn't matter how studious you are trying to learn his teaching. Only Jesus can accomplish salvation. We can do nothing to bring it about. No matter how hard we try, we cannot bring about life from death. But Jesus, by going to the cross, despising its shame, gained life for us. What that means is you can't understand Jesus apart from knowing that he came to die. That was his mission. And so for John, the cross was not a place of shame, but a place of glory. Not glory in spite of the cross, but glory because of the cross. Now, do you ever wonder why people wear crosses in jewelry? It's so commonplace now, we don't think about it. But let me ask you this. Would you wear a piece of jewelry that was a pendant of an electric chair? Or a hanging gallows? Or a guillotine? I don't think so. I don't think that the ladies of our church would walk up to a young lady and say, Oh, I love that guillotine. It's just so sharp looking. No, no. And that's really what the cross should be for us. You see, we've become so used to it, we've lost the wonder of the cross, the shame of the cross, that Jesus triumphed in the cross. Jesus has shown us the glory of the cross. Well, and Jesus applies the glory of the cross to us. That's the second thing we see this morning. The glory 
of following Jesus. Do you see how Jesus speaks in verse 24? He's very certain in his terms. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He doesn't say would bear, could bear, might bear. It's a certain statement. He is telling us that his death will bear much fruit. And do you know what that fruit is? Why, it's you and me. If you're here this morning and you've believed on Jesus, if you have trusted him to pay for your sins by his death, then you are that fruit. That is salvation. That is hope. That is glory. And so Jesus then gives us a second saying, a paradox in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And this is a statement that sounds paradoxical. That is, two statements that don't seem to make sense, and as you bring them together and study them, you see that they do make sense. He says, it's only by not holding on to life that you can gain it and keep it. And if you seek to keep your life, you'll lose it. He said this in other places in the Gospels as well. And if that is confusing to you, I will bring you back to one of my consistent pieces of pastoral encouragement. Do not listen to Disney. Ever. Do not follow your heart. That's the advice of Disney and the world. Follow your heart. Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying your heart will lead you in a certain, certain direction. Your heart will want you to go towards your passion, towards the things that you have interest in, towards the things you think will benefit you. Don't follow it. That's the way of death. You see, if you love and hold on to this present life, that's all you will get. And this present life is fleeting. It's fragile. It doesn't last. And so many people are only focused on the here and the now. They'll sacrifice their integrity for some temporary gain or for fame. People naturally love themselves and want to think that everything is fine. Jesus tells us that the end of that way of thinking is death and loss. Will you listen to Jesus? He's God. He's the one who stared death in the face and defeated it. He knows you better than you know yourself. So what does it mean then to hate life in verse 25? When we first come across this, we think, is Jesus telling us that we should be self-loathing, that we should be in despair all the time, that we should not want to have life, that we should want to escape life? No. This is too often the case today. People, especially young people, can't look past their pain and their hurt. They just want to escape life. They want to do away with life. They want to run away from a job, run away from their parents, run away from school. Sometimes literally run away from life itself. Now there is pain and hurt in this life. 
But Jesus is not telling you to focus on that. Hating something in this sense is viewing it of no value compared to something else. That's what Jesus is telling us. We're not to view this life as of any value compared to following him. You may remember that Jesus earlier told his disciples that if you are to be my disciple, you must hate your father or mother. Now, Jesus is not telling you to go home and scream at your parents. You know, my friend Kevin DeYoung has a comment on this verse. He says, you know, sometimes teens come across that verse, hate your father or mother, and they think, oh, I found my life verse. <laughs> no, no. Um, you see, what Jesus is telling us here is that we must die to self. We must die to our own will, to our own desires, to our own circumstances. And we must surrender to Jesus. Jesus is not saying give up. He's saying come to me. It's actually the exact opposite. We are to follow Jesus really and actually, not just in words. And that's where our hope can be found. Is Jesus your greatest desire? Do you think about the commands of Jesus before you do something? The commands that are found in his word. Do you think about what Jesus says before you strive for something? That's the focus of a follower of Jesus. You see, faith and obedience are the real marks of the Christian. Jesus is giving us a command here in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. It is not an option to follow Jesus. That is what defines a Christian. And following Jesus means walking after him. It means bearing your cross. It means denying yourself. Are you serving Jesus with your life? Could someone provide enough evidence to convict you of being a follower of Christ? Are you holding fast to Jesus' word? Jesus has commanded you to follow him. But there's more than just a command. Jesus also gives us an encouragement. And Jesus would have the authority to merely command us. But instead, he also gives us a promise. A promise that explains the glory of following him. There couldn't be a greater promise. He says, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Jesus is promising you that as you follow him, he will always be with you. Even when you stray, he will not abandon you. And so you need to ask yourself, would I rather have good circumstances in this life? Or would I rather have Jesus with me? Would I rather have great health and long life and untold riches and fame everywhere? Or would I rather have Jesus be with me? You see, that's the question of eternity. 
if following Jesus is our duty, being with Jesus is our reward. There's a final promise at the end of verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, the question then that comes to us is, would you settle for a temporary earthly happiness when you could have the honor of the Father? We can't be short-sighted. We have to think with eternal eyes. You know, it's like this. You've probably heard this question. Someone poses a question to you. Which do you want? I'll give you a million dollars today. Or I will give you a penny today and double it every day for the next 30 years. And people think, well, a million dollars? What am I going to do with a penny? Give me the million dollars. Now, you all know about me and Matt. I'm always taking the penny. Because whoever comes up with this example, it's always like, you got a million dollars, but the other person ended up with a trillion dollars. That's always how it works up. Right? You need to think big picture. You need to look at your eternal destiny. The honor of the Father is matchless as a promise. Our lasting hope and blessing is to have the honor of the Father. To know that we are forgiven and to be a part of the family of God. Are you seeking Jesus? And by that, I don't just mean asking questions or just being in church. I mean, do you know that Jesus' death on the cross is the most important event in all of history? And also, it's the most important event in your life. Are you following Jesus? Denying yourself and taking up your cross. Jesus' promise is not just a statement in the Bible. It's not just a promise to the 12 disciples. It is for you. Don't wait. Come to Jesus now. Follow him with all of your life. He will be with you.